You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast interview with health advocate, writer, and medical student Victor A. Lopez Carmen. This podcast is supported by the Yen Michalski Foundation. I was raised in Tucson, Arizona, which is where the Yaqui tribe is. My mom is Yaqui, and she's Mexican, Irish, and Spanish as well. But I was raised Yaqui, you know, in ceremonies. My mom worked for the tribe. It was pretty much everything that I knew, always surrounded by community there, Yaquis, and being on the reservation, babysat, going to, to take care, running around the reservation, the kids during ceremonies. And it's just how I grew up. And then I also grew up, you know, fairly engrossed in my Dakota side. My dad is Dakota and uh, I'm a member from him. I'm formally enrolled in the Crow Creek Sioux tribe. And, uh, he took us to ceremonies as well, to a couple different ceremonies from our tribe and always really felt close to that. Both my parents, when I was younger, were involved in indigenous activism. My mom and my dad would often go to protests. They would organize movements. They'd be part of multilateral indigenous people's movements, not only nationally, but internationally that were operating at the grassroots level. Activism is a, it's a tradition in my family for indigenous rights. Often they say, and you hear this in a lot of dialogue in today's society, you have to walk in two worlds as a indigenous person. But I try to push past that and really embody myself and say, Hey, you can be indigenous no matter where you go. You don't have to walk in two worlds. You can take your full self in any context. And sometimes that may cause some conflict, obviously, because we're still trying to maintain our indigenous identity in today's society. And sometimes it's not always easy, but I find some peace in being true to myself and being true to, to what my ancestors were as well. And for me to take my culture and our traditions everywhere I go, I found that that gives me a lot of strength to get through difficult moments in life. And that gives me some peace as well. And you've spoken and written about this seventh generation ethic, but it's hard for many of us to even imagine seven generations down the line now. Yeah, it can be very difficult and it's not. When we say seven generations, it's also our generations are longer from grandparent to grandparent. It's not the Western idea of one generation. So it's even longer than most people would know. And the thing is, it does take practice. It does take true intention, not only individually, but societal community intention. It has to be built into the structure of a community, of a country, of a tribe. And for our tribes, for my tribe, that was built into our structure. It was built into the way that we lived. And a lot of people think it's this individual thing that you're making decisions every day, like to recycle. And that's for the seventh generation, which, you know, that can be true as well. But it's much more systemic and thoughtful than that. It's at a very, very high level. And we have a lot of records of our leaders of indigenous peoples councils, even prior to colonization, or when they would meet, they would discuss future generations and specifically like how their actions that they were taking, for instance, actions they would take on where to move that year or actions they would take on whether to engage in conflict, even during colonization on whether to enter into a treaty with the United States government. How would that impact future generations from the tribe? And they would really have a discussion on that. 
And that's the level that it needs to be built into, in my opinion, into the way that we formulate policies today. There always has to be a place in the discussion where we say, stop, let's think about how this impacts those future generations. Let's, let's really discuss this. Let's really analyze this because if we don't do that, it's just going to go down to the individual level and not be at the systemic level that we need it to be for it to work. Take, for instance, my tribe. You could take any tribe, but take my tribe. The Ocheti Shakongi, which is made up of the Dakota and Lakota, otherwise known as the Great Sioux Nation. We've been on the land that we're on for thousands and thousands of years, like at least 10,000 years, if not more. I keep, they keep getting it pushed back. Like every new discovery they make pushes it back, back. And they've even made a discovery. They found that we were here before the Bering Strait theory was supposedly you know, to take place. So they've just now disproven the Bering Strait theory. So we've been here for thousands of years and we've developed a language during that time. So integrated into the language is so much knowledge about how to live in our traditional territories. In our traditional territories, our language developed. And because of that, our culture is so embedded within the language and the land. It's almost interconnected with it, with the different animals that live there, the different species, the plants, all our metaphors have something to do with the land that we've been on. And because we're so connected to it and it's part of our spirituality as well. When we say intergenerational values are in our language, that's part of it. Because when we're speaking our language, it's passing on our culture. It's passing on that connection that we have to our ancestors on the land. It's passing on how to live on the land. It's passing on all the methods and the science that we've developed for thousands of years of how things work on the land. For instance, embedded in our language are various principles of how nature works that science knows today of different, you know, seasons of different things that grow at certain times of different things that are poisonous, that we stay away from of different ways that help us to live. And, and that came from our ancestors. So that's that sort of intergenerational aspect. It's not just words. It's our culture, it's our spirituality, it's our survival. And when we lose our language, we're losing all of that information, all of the information of traditional ecological knowledge within our language. And they've shown that indigenous languages are connected to planetary health and to climate change. And when an indigenous community loses their language, the planet and takes a huge hit because of all the traditional ecological knowledge that that community's losing that protects the area that they're in. So like National Geographic, they've shown that 70 to 80% of the biodiversity left on planet earth today of the, all the plants, all the different life forms, 70 to 80% are situated in indigenous territories right now. And we only make up five, around 5% 5 of the global population. So we are literally the way that we operate and the way that we are is literally saving the planet because we're the ones who are still taking care of it. We're still protecting it. And our languages are the things that they, that help us do that. There's a story during the colonial period when we had a treaty between my tribe and the U S government and that the black Hills, which is, you know, it's, it's the heart of our nation. It's one of our sacred sites that 
that land would be ours as long as the water ran, as long as the buffalo were there and the grass grew. Essentially, the U.S. said this, you know, that we signed it and that land was ours. And then miners started moving in because they found gold in the Black Hills. And, you know, they started killing our people. And so our tribal leaders, you know, they started fighting back. And then the U.S. military moved in to, to take, they pretty much took the Black Hills and they started fighting us, but we didn't give up. And so our people, it was called the Battle of Little Bighorn. And we defeated the U.S. military at that battle and it was to protect the Black Hills for future generations. Uh, and then another battle within the, a week, we defeated the U.S. military again to protect our territory. We were the, I, I believe, one of the only tribes or a group of tribes that defeated the U.S. military twice within a two-week span. And we had allies there that were the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, the Lakota, and Dakota. So we defeated them. And one of our chiefs, odds, and was a Chief Crazy Horse, when they rode into battle to to meet the U.S. soldiers, his war cry was, only the earth lives forever. And to me, that that's really powerful because it shows what we were fighting for, you know, and that they were willing to die for Mother Earth to protect it from this this really nasty mining and the killing of, of the animals and the deforestation, that they're willing to put their lives on the line for that. And the U.S. government, you know, from our stories and our elders told us they weren't able to defeat us until they started killing our women, our children, and killing elders and massacring in a really non-honorable way. Our elders always tell us that they weren't able to, de to defeat us ever in an honorable battle until they started targeting the women, children, elders, and starving us by, they almost massacred the buffalo to near extinction. They almost you know, made the buffalo go extinct because that was our food source. And that's eventually our people were starving and that's why uh, they moved on to the reservation because they didn't have any more food because the government killed all the buffalo. So that's a story that we're still told today. And, you know, we keep in, in our hearts that our ancestors were never defeated honorably. They fought for the earth. They fought for the land to protect it. And that we still have to do that. And today, to this day, we're still fighting for the Black Hills. And we're still carrying on that fight that our ancestors, uh, you know, that our ancestors engaged in. I think young people need to learn about the ancient. And that needs to be valued as something that is not just in the past, as something that we can still learn from and is still alive today. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez.